We're starting a, a sermon series, a really short one. It's only going to last three, three Sundays, but a really short one uh, entitled Why. It's important uh, to know the whys of the faith. It's important not to be gullible and just believe something because the preacher told you. Or uh, um, uh, it's important to, to think through your faith. If you have it in the head and have it in the heart, your will, uh, can, God can really use you. Uh, if you just have it in the heart or just have it in the head, he really can't use you as much as if you have both of those. And so we're going to ask some questions of the Christian faith and why things are this way. And we're going to be skeptical. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that because there's some things about the Christian faith that make you scratch your head. And we all can admit that. And, and uh, that's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but uh, what is wrong with that is never trying to wrestle with those questions and trying to get answers to those questions. So we're going to do that for the next three weeks. And this week, and maybe into next week, I'm not sure. But at least this week, we're going we're to say, why can we trust God's Word? Why is it that we can believe that this book is, is accurate? Why is it that we can believe that this book is not fiction? Why is it that we can believe that, that this book is just not legend that's been handed down through uh, centuries and thousands of years? Why can we believe that the Bible is literally the Word of God? And so I'm going to spend some time today on that, and maybe next week on that as too. I want you to know something that you probably already know. The Bible is the most read. The Bible is the most translated. Uh, the Bible is the most, a whole lot of things, the most debated, the most uh, banned, the most disputed, the most denied book of all time. Um, and just because of that, it deserves everyone's attention, believer or not. If you're an unbeliever, if you're a skeptic, you've got to deal with a book that's, a, that's the most best-selling book of all time. You've got to deal with a book that has been translated in more language than any other book has been translated into. You've got to deal. You just can't ignore that. And a book that is even hated as much as the Bible is or banned as much as the Bible is, you've got to say, what is it about this book that makes it the most, on one end, positive things and most negative things on the other? You just can't turn a blind eye to it. That's just, that doesn't make any sense at all. This, the, the Bible is, is, is the biggest source of music that the world has ever seen, meaning there are, there's more music written, written about Bible themes than any other things. The Bible is the biggest source of art and architecture, meaning more paintings, more sculptures have been made concerning biblical things than any other things. And, and when you have a book that has been that impactful to the world, not to the United States, to the world, you've got to deal with that book. And, and we're going to deal with some of the skeptics and some of the questions that they have about this book. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is a verse that I read at every single funeral. I've done it for years and years and probably will do it till I hang up my preacher hat. And I, I read this at every single funeral, and I read it right before I read Scripture because I'm getting ready at funerals to read Scriptures to family and friends for comfort and encouragement in their life. So is this just, uh, is this just a good book that somebody wrote? What do these words mean? Why should that comfort me? And I always read this verse as a prerequisite to all those other verses that bring hope and encouragement. Because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is God 
breathed. Now that, that word God breathed is, is, is literally the word theonustus. Theo, God, theology, theo, the study of God. Theo is God, and noustus is kind of like where we get the word pneumonia, breath. Um, uh, theonustus is God breathed. And the Bible says about itself, Paul wrote that and said the, the Bible is God breathed. Now some other translations would say all scripture is inspired by God. Now that's not a horrible translation, but it's not as good as God breathed. It's not as accurate as God breathed. Inspired can mean a lot of things. Inspired can mean I'm inspired to do something. I'm inspired to go out and, and run a marathon or whatever. But God breathed means it came from the very breath of God. You're hearing, what you're hearing right now is my breath that comes over my vocal cords. That's what you're hearing. If I didn't, if I couldn't muster any breath, I, you could not hear me speak right now. You are hearing Mark Atherton breathed words right now. So when the Bible says that all scripture is God breathed, you are hearing the word of God and that the Bible is saying that about itself. And it's and it's, it's, it's good and it's right and it's proper to say, why? I mean, just, do I just swallow that? Am I, do I just say, oh, okay, that's what the Bible says. I guess I'll believe it. Or do I investigate that and say, is that really true? This has been done forever. Time Magazine has, has, had, has had covers that uh, have talked about, can we really believe God's word? Newsweek magazines. There's been all kinds of secular magazines that have looked into the truth of God's word. And we should be able to do that um, as well. Can I tell you something before we get started? Understanding the truth of God's word, the fact that it is true, it is accurate, it is crucial, it is important, it is necessary, but hear me, it's not sufficient. Now here, I want you to hear that again, because that's not an easily, I know you're having to process that and say, well, what's he meaning by that? Understanding that this is accurate Understanding that this is true, understanding that the Red Sea was really parted and so forth and so on, that's crucial, that's important, that's necessary, but it is not sufficient in and of itself. And I'm going to circle back there at the very end of the sermon and tell you what I mean by that. I want to tell you this morning that you can trust the Bible because the Bible is historically Accurate. It is not just accurate theologically. It is not just accurate uh, doctrinally. It's about real people, and it is about real events. It is an accurate portrayal of history. And one of the ways we know that is the Bible puts so much emphasis on eyewitnesses, and it talks about so many people that were eyewitnesses of this. Now, back in the day, not necessarily now as much, but back in the day, they obviously didn't have... Uh, Google that they could look up something to see if it was true or not. Or they obviously didn't have libraries that they could go look in other books that have been written and this quote that this guy made isn't really true or not. The way they decided if something was true or not were eyewitnesses. I, I'm, I'm saying this and this person is an eyewitness to what I said. And so a proof of what I'm saying is true is the fact that I name people and say that so-and-so are eyewitnesses to what I saw. So, sort of like I'm up here saying something, da 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 and if you don't believe me, go ask Greg McAfee because he saw it too. Same thing. Okay, I'm saying da-da-da-da-da, um, uh, it doesn't make any difference, whatever I'm talking about, and if you don't believe me, go ask Anna because she was there and she saw it too. And if you don't believe me, what are you going to do? You're going to go to Greg. You're going to go to Anna. 
And if Greg and Anna say, Atherton, that, he's nuts. That didn't happen. And so whatever I just said will just vanish. But if they back up what I've said, you're going you're gonna to say, wow, really? And so in that day and the time when biblical writers said eyewitnesses and named people that were eyewitnesses, those people for verification went to those eyewitnesses. If what the Bible said then and what the manuscripts were saying were not true, the Bible would have never made it out of the first or second century. People said, well, all that stuff that Luke was writing, that's, we went to the eyewitnesses and they said that was wrong. It would have never made it out of the first or second century and we wouldn't even know anything about Christianity today because the Bible talks about eyewitnesses over and over and over again. It is one big reason that we can trust it historically. See, Moses was there when the Red Sea was parted and Joshua was there when the walls came down and Matthew was there when Jesus rose from the grave and um, uh, he, he wrote about it and, and, and Peter was there and Peter told Mark and Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. Well, it's not the gospel of Peter. We have some letters that were Peter's, but Peter was there, saw it all, told Mark about it, and Mark wrote it down, so we have the Gospel of Mark. And, and John was there, and so John wrote about it. Luke was not there, but Luke plainly says in his writings that he investigated this thoroughly to be able to find out if this was true or not. And Luke talked to all of them, talked to the mother of Jesus, and in his investigation before he wrote all of these accounts. And Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, I guess it was, Paul says, there's 500 people that saw Jesus after he resurrected. And Paul said, most of them are alive today. And why do you say most of them are alive? Because go talk to them. Go see them. Go ask them questions if this is not. This is how the biblical writers were being accountable to everybody and saying, I'm just not making this stuff up. This is really real. And that's what Luke does in his gospel and he opens it up in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, in a very peculiar way, okay? Um, Luke was a doctor, which means he was a very, very educated person, okay? More educated than any of the gospel writers, okay? And you, and you get that after, after reading what he writes here in Luke chapter 1, uh, 1 through 4, because he's kind of making sure that all this is really true. So Luke writes... In Luke chapter 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us. Many people have written about this, of the things that have been fulfilled among us, okay? Just as they were handed down to us by those from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided... Okay, I know Matthew wrote something, and I know that Mark wrote something, I know John wrote something, but I too have decided to write an orderly account for you, most ec excellent Theopolis. We don't know who he is. It was just, he, he was addressing this letter to him. And we can use our imagination. Maybe, um, maybe the person he was writing it to was in one of the churches of the day and was re really skeptical and could have been saying, hey, why is this true? Why is that true? Why is this true? And maybe Luke just went on a, a search to try to find it himself. And so this is what I found, and I'm writing this letter to you. So he writes it to him, and he says, I've written it to you so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. 
This is the purpose of Luke's gospel. So that you may know the certainty of the things that you've heard and what you have been taught. Now, it doesn't show up in the, in the English, but can I tell you something that Dr. Joseph Wong at Asbury Seminary tried to drill in my head? These first four verses are different than all of the rest of the Gospel of Luke. After these first four verses, the, the, the Greek writings change. The, the manuscripts are in Greek. And it becomes narrative. It becomes telling about stories. This, the first four verses in the Greek are very professional, very businesslike, very orderly, very legal. And Dr. Wong tried to show me that anybody in that day and time writing an historical document would write a preface to it like these first four verses. And he says that's exactly what Luke is doing, saying that this is an historical thing. I want you to know that I've researched this. I have taken um, my heart and soul and mind and looked through this, and this is what I've been able to find. Eyewitness accounts are really, really important. So in the Gospel of Mark, when Mark says Simon the Cyrene carried Jesus' cross for him, he says that. And then he says that Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander. Now, that's just odd. I mean, why did he have to tell us that Simon, what, what does that have to do with that whole scene of Jesus um, uh, carrying the cross and not able to carry the cross and Simon picking it up? What does the fact that Simon had two kids by the name of Rufus and Alexander, what in the world does that have anything to do with it? Well, we can speculate, but I think we're pretty close, okay? Um, by the time Luke wrote his, Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross, may have died. He no longer is an eyewitness. His two boys may be alive. Go ask them. Go ask. And Rufus and Alexander, uh, by naming them, they could have meant that they were kind of important people in that community. Everybody knows Rufus and Alexander. Go ask them. Go ask them if this is not true. Go ask them if their daddy didn't carry the cross of Jesus as Jesus was as Jesus was going to the cross. The fact that there are eyewitnesses, and many times those eyewitnesses are named, is, is proof to us that there's historical accuracy to all of this. You remember in the Gospel of John, and uh, the, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and one, of, uh, and, and, and one of the people with Jesus, I don't know, was it Peter? I can't remember who it was, took out a sword and cut off a piece of one of those soldiers' ears. Do you remember that? Remember what his name was? Malchus. Well, why they got to tell us that? How many soldiers were there that came to pick up Jesus? Probably a whole bunch. So why, why, did they, why couldn't it just say, you know, Peter got all fired up and pulled out his sword and cut off one of the soldiers? Why did it name Malchus unless Malchus would still been alive and could have testified the fact that Peter sliced off a piece of his ear and this person called Jesus of Nazareth reached out and put it back on? The eyewitness accounts bring historical accuracy to this text. Most of the people that Jesus healed, you don't get a name on them. They just talk about he healed a leper, healed, healed a blind man. But every now and then you get, a, you get a name. Like Bartimaeus is named in Mark chapter 4, and Jesus names him. Why would he be named? And most of the people not named unless he was still alive. And Mark's saying, go find Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, and find him and ask him if this one called Jesus of Nazareth didn't touch him and heal him in that way. 
All through God's word, you have eyewitness accounts over and over. Luke, Luke says, the women go to the tomb. He, 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 but he names the women. If, if I'm writing something, I guess I wouldn't have to say that I could just say three women went to the tomb and found it empty or found the stone rolled away. No, he says that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. He says Joanna went to the tomb. And he says Mary, mother of Jesus, went to the tomb. Why else than to be accountable, and if you don't believe me, go find Mary Magdalene. Go find Joanna. Go find Mary, the mother of Jesus. And, and Luke, the end of Luke, um, there's a count called about the road to Emmaus, and, and it's, Jesus has uh, been resurrected, and he hasn't appeared yet to all the disciples, but he appears to two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke tells us. And Luke tells us one of their names was Cleopas. He doesn't tell us the other one's name. That's just, that's just weird in and of itself. Why would he name one and not the other? Unless maybe by the time Luke got around to writing his gospel, the other had died, and Cleopas was the only one left that you can go and verify that this is true. If I'm writing a fictional account, I'm just going to make up a name. Cleopas and Harry met Jesus on the road to him. I'm just going to make it up. Why am I going to say Cleopas and another man? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Maybe the other one, unnamed one, has died, and you can go check with Cleopas. He's still living. Verify what I'm saying. Bible is historically accurate because of, of, of the eyewitnesses that are mentioned that could have verified and could have said, no, this didn't happen, and this Christianity thing would have stopped very early on, would have probably not made it to the first century. Another reason it's historically accurate is, is the extreme care that the scribes and the rabbis took in, in copying the scrolls. They didn't have copying machines. They didn't have printing presses back then, okay? The only way that that a, a, a gospel of Matthew or the only way that Isaiah's writings are going to get copied is if somebody copies it by hand. And if you read about the extreme care, they considered it a sacred duty to be able to copy this. There was so many rows that they could have on the scroll and only so many letters in each row and so many columns that they had. And they didn't copy it word for word and what they mean by that so they got the original or whatever is the what they're copying from it wouldn't have been the original but what they're copying from and they're looking at it and they see a whole sentence and they go write a whole sentence they don't do that they copied it letter for letter because sometimes if you see a whole sentence and then you go over here and write it you may mess up just a little bit you probably will say the exact same thing but not exactly the way it's written over here they didn't copy it word for word or sentence for sentence. They copied it letter by letter. It was a sacred duty for these men when they did this. They knew, this blows your mind, okay? But I, I, I checked this out in four different sources to be able to say, and all the best sources verified this. They knew how many letters were in one of the books they were copying. So let's say they're copying uh, Jeremiah's writing, they knew how many letters 
were in all of that writings from Jeremiah. And once the copying got done, they went back and they counted every single letter. And if they didn't come up with the right number, they threw it away and they started again. It was unbelievable care. This, the sacredness of the duty that these rabbis and scribes felt as they did this gives us great, great confidence of the historical accuracy of those documents. Um, some of you were around in 1947. Not, not very many of us were. But in 1947, there was something found called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And a, and a, and a shepherd was out in the wilderness. A Bedouin shepherd was out in the wilderness, and he was trying to get one of his sheep and wake one of his sheep up in a cave. And he took a rock and he threw it in that cave to try to wake one of his sheep up. And when he threw that rock in the cave, he heard something break. And when he went in and investigated, a clay pot had broken. And what he saw in those clay pots were fragments of Old Testament writings. And this was an unbelievable discovery. Because when the guys that know what they're doing here go back and date these, these were 1,000 years earlier than any writings we had had. The earliest writings that we had 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 been 900 years after Jesus. These were dated 100 years before Jesus. A 1,000-year difference. And when they started looking at these fragments, the whole scrolls weren't there. There were fragments of Isaiah and there were fragments of Jeremiah and so forth and so on. And when they started every book but Esther, and when they started going through and looking at these, and looking at these, they found uncanny similarities between the two, one 900 years after Jesus that they were looking at, that they thought was the oldest they had, and this one. In fact, the only differences they could find were in the spelling of some words, basically cities and names. In 1,000 years, it had been preserved. Listen, if you do a serious investigation on this and you have no agenda and you just go where the facts lead you without an agenda, which is what many atheists and skeptics have done, and when they get through, they, many of them will account that they are now believers, Lee Strobel being probably the most well-known of them, because of what they found when they investigated the, the truth of the documents that we have. The book of Acts is a historical writing because the book of Acts talks about, um, it talks about 54 cities in the book of Acts, 20 countries. It's just not, well, he went here, went there. No, they're naming where he went. They're naming he got on a boat to go here. 54 cities, uh, 20, some odd, 20 countries, three continents, nine different islands. The, the, the detail on this is remarkable to someone who just decided they were going to make something up and propagate a legend. I'm trying to tell you this morning, there is historical accuracy. All the archaeological finds have backed it up as well. You cannot find, there has not been an archaeological dig that has uncovered anything that says, whoop, because what we have found, the Bible is not true. It, Everything that has been found has validated something in God's Word.
They, there was a city that was named that people had forgotten about and never knew existed, but in some kind of archaeological dig, they found something that named that city and said, well, I guess it really was a city. Look what we found. Nothing has been found on any kind of archaeological discovery that has disputed or proved God's word. Now, the truth of the matter is, everything hasn't been found. Joshua's walls that came tumbling down haven't been found. Noah's ark has not been found. There's been a whole lot of things that haven't been found. And some people, skeptics, will say, well, they haven't found that, they haven't found this, they haven't found that, they haven't found this. The fact that you haven't found something is no proof that it didn't happen. It's no proof that it didn't happen. And even there, some archaeological finds have have disprove skeptics they say there's no way in the bible where solomon talks in the book of proverbs about all of his horses so there's no way that can be true because the only thing they had back on then in in that part of the world was camels but in 1903 they were doing some digging in in what is one of solomon's palaces and they found stables for horses every archaeological find has backed up the Bible talks about the Hittites. And, and so skeptics back then said, well, I mean, there's never been any kind of discovery of any kind of a people called the Hittites. I, I, that Bible's made that up. That's proof the Bible's wrong. People, the Bible's talking about the Hittites. We've never found the Hittites. But uh, 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 archaeologic, uh, archaeologic, a person that does archaeological digs. What's he called? Archaeologist. Thank you. I have a master's degree, you know. (laughs) An archaeologist was digging one day and found 20 clay tablets, and inside of those were talking about the people called the Hittites. And now you can go on Wikipedia and no one doubts the Hittites. I'm trying to tell you that the historical accuracy of this book is absolutely amazing. And if you go on a search looking for historical accuracy and have no agenda and just go where the facts lead you, you'll be amazed at what the, what the Bible, what's in the Bible will be proved true. Not everything has been found, but you'll be amazed at what has been found and backs that up. The Bible is also scientifically accurate. Now, hear me now. The Bible is not a, a science book. The Bible doesn't explain uh, gravity to us. Okay? It doesn't explain to us why the earth just doesn't fall out of the sky. It's not a science book. But the, listen to me. This, listen. I, the Bible never, ever gives bad science. And here's what I mean by that. There's bad science everywhere and what i mean by that what was thought to be true a hundred years ago is no longer true today that's in almost every realm of science i'm not putting down the scientists i'm just saying over the course of time almost all science has been proved to be not exactly the way it was or sometimes completely different you go take your high school science textbook, maybe with the, well, probably even for these guys that are doing science down here, probably by the time that the book is printed, it's out of date. And uh, Frank Cunningham 
Dr. Frank, when he was in medical school, he said that his professors in medical school told him, by the time you're reading this medical book that was probably written three to four years ago and just now got to press, it is out of date. We have got discoveries now that make some of this not the way we do it anymore. You will not find bad science in the Bible because if you found bad science, you'd be finding things that weren't true. And you would expect Throughout the Bible, you would expect maybe some science to be thrown in and whatever was thought true in that day, you would think that would be thrown in the Bible, right? No, the Bible doesn't put very much science in there at all because science is forever changing. And what we once thought was true is no longer true. And the Bible doesn't include things in it that are not true. What we once thought caused cancer doesn't cause cancer anymore, does it? What you're supposed to used to be able to do as a pregnant woman, you do that differently now, don't you? I talked to Frank yesterday about it. I said, tell me some things that have just changed in your short time as a doctor since you've graduated from medical school. He said, and some of you will remember this. He said, we used to immobilize everybody if they had some kind of a leg injury or an ankle injury or something like that. We'd immobilize. And I've had hair cast on my ankles and all that kind of stuff. He says, we realized we were hurting people. Because we were keeping, uh, we were slowing down the recovery process. And we were probably encouraging blood to clot, which can have very drastic effects on somebody. And so now we get them on their feet and moving ASAP. And some of you know that have had some kind of injury. We used to prescribe antibiotics for everything, but we realized antibiotics weren't what we thought they were. And so they're not used as wisely as they used to be. We used to not give beta blockers to people that had had heart attacks because we didn't think that what they were going to do for them was the right thing. Now we give beta blockers to everybody. Medical, not medical science, science is forever changing because of new discoveries, new machinery, stronger telescopes, better MRIs, all that kind of stuff. And so the Bible doesn't talk about science too much because if it did talk about the science of the day, it would be wrong. It would not be truth. And the Bible has truth in it. And so that's why, and that's why the Bible in most places, not all, eliminates stuff about science. That's why the Bible doesn't. How many, for, for how many centuries or thousands of years did they think the world was flat? Forever. Is there anything in the Bible about it being flat? You would think that Moses, when he's writing this, You know, he was taught that the world was flat, or Jeremiah was taught that the earth was flat. You think somewhere in those writings it would have crept in somewhere. No, it doesn't creep in because because that's bad science. In fact, Isaiah 40 talks about the circle of the earth. The circle of the earth. Moses was... Adopted, right? I don't have time to tell you, remember, if you don't remember that story. But, but Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And so he was raised as an Egyptian, which meant he was raised in luxury and had the best education he possibly could have. The Egyptians were the top of the line scholars in that day and time. And that day and time, they thought, the Egyptians thought, you can read this, this is secular truth, it's taught everywhere, that the Egyptians believed at that time that the earth was upheld by five pillars P A L L A R S. Now, you think somewhere in, in the writings of all the Bible, 
that they would express the wisdom of the day, that the earth was upheld by five pillars. But if you read Job chapter 26, you'll read just the opposite, that the earth is suspended, the Bible says, over nothing. The Bible doesn't hit on science too often, but what it, when it does, it hits on the truth that's there. And you remember, some of you remember the uh, bubonic plague in the Middle Ages. One-fourth of Europe died. And why did one-fourth of Europe die? They didn't understand about germs. They didn't know that I, you could catch a germ from me and I could catch a germ from you. So they didn't isolate people that got this sickness. And they all caught it from each other and a quarter of the whole Europe died. They didn't understand that you could be contagious. Way back in Leviticus, talks about if you have open sores, you need to go outside the camp for seven days and let the priest check you after seven days. And if it's not healed, you need to go outside the camp seven more days. Isolate them. <laughs> the Bible's not a science book. But where it does talk about science, it was ahead of its time. And the one reason it doesn't talk about science is because science has been changing for centuries and for thousands of years. Y- y'all, remember, <laughs> y'all remember reading about bloodletting? Centuries ago when they were sick, they thought they ought to drain your blood from you. That's how George Washington died, because they drained 40% of his blood. Bloodletting was an acceptable Medical procedure, acceptable scientific thing. Baba talks about that the power of life is in the lifeblood. I'm trying to say this morning that science is forever changing. And the best books of the day are now obsolete, and you would laugh at some of them science books, medical books, so forth and so on. You don't laugh at the Bible, and the Bible doesn't say those things because it did not include much about science because the, God knows science was, our discoveries are evolving. And if something was put in there about bad science, then the Bible would not be true. The Bible is scientifically accurate because basically what it doesn't talk about, and it doesn't talk about all, those, all that bad science that everybody accepted in the day. Well, let me finish. Historically accurate, scientifically accurate, and let me tell you that although this book that we understand to be the Bible was written over 1,600 years by 40 different authors, on three continents and in three different languages. Even though all that is true, there is one unifying theme all the way through. That's that's amazing. Forty different authors over 1,600-year time span, three different continents, and three different languages. And there's one, and these people didn't know, some of them knew one another, but a lot of them didn't know one another. And there's one theme running all the way 
through it. And that theme from Genesis to the end of the Revelation is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, if you think the Bible is about morality, if you think the Bible is about ethics, if you think the Bible is about this is what you should do and this is what you not should do, you miss the theme of the Bible. Are there things that what the Bible teaches you, you should do this and you shouldn't do this and this is the way, of course, I'm not doubting that, but I'm saying it's not the theme. The theme of the Bible all the way from start to finish is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you think it's about morality and ethics, you've missed it. You've missed the whole point of the thing. <laughs> take, the sermon on, <laughs> take the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't understand, it, understand anything about Jesus, you hate the Sermon on the Mount. Because who lives it? Stand up right now if you do. And I shouldn't be standing right now. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount is a suffocating thing if it is not for the person of Jesus Christ who lived the Sermon on the Mount, died for us who didn't live the Sermon on the Mount. It's a suffocating document. <laughs> Mark Twain said he used to have a reoccurring nightmare that the Bible was crushing him. Because he thought it was a book of morality. That you must do this and you must do this and you must do this. And he missed it that it was a book about Jesus. I mean, a sermon on the mount will kill you, friends. It not only tells you to give. It, it says you ought to give so freely your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. It not only tells you that you're not supposed to kill somebody. Not only that you do the opposite, you're not even supposed to insult someone. And even if you say to someone, you're a fool, the Sermon on the Mount says that you're guilty of murder. And Jesus, that's, I mean, that's not what Mark says. That's what the Sermon on the Mount says. And everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount because it teaches us how to be good people. Well, who lives it? It crushes you. It suffocates you unless you just rationalize and says, well, I, I don't live it really good, but I live it better than Brian does, so I'm okay. If you think the Sermon on the Mount is something, instructions that we have to go out and live that, and of course, of course it's, it's, it's saying this is a good life to live. But if this is God's standard and there is no Jesus Christ involved with this, if this is God's standard, it suffocates us. It's a depressing document. Who lives up to it? You know who did? Jesus. And he didn't need to die for his sins. He died anyway for mine and for yours because we haven't lived up to the Sermon on the Mount. That's the gospel if you've never heard it, by the way. That's the good news. If you, think the, if you think the Bible is about morality and ethics, it'll do two things to you. It will either make you a Pharisee and a bigot that makes you wish everybody was just as good and righteous and holy as you are, 
or it will depress you so bad you'll junk the whole thing and you'll say, the heck with Christianity, I'm just going out and be a pagan because look at this standard I can't live. But if you know that from the front of the book to the end of the book, it points you like a laser beam to the person of Jesus Christ, changes everything. There's one theme running all the way through that. So we're not just talking about, it's a good little story about Joseph in Genesis 38 through 50. It's not just a good little story about Joseph. It's, 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 it's Joseph who was persecuted and Joseph who was mistreated by his brothers and he ended up being the savior of all of his people. It's not just about Moses. It's about a Moses who went on top of the mountain and interceded with, between a holy God and a sinful people. It's not just about a David who went out and, 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 and conquered a giant. It's about David who saved his people from the giant. It's not just about Jonah in the belly of a well. It's Jonah who went into the water, calmed the storm, saved the people, and just by the way was spit out after three days and three nights in the belly of a well. And Jesus comes along and tells us through his scripture, I'm the Joseph. I'm the Moses. I'm the Jonah. I'm the David. <laughs> There's one theme. There's one theme. Jesus talked about this. Luke chapter 24, what do we have up here, Jen? Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus talking to uh, Cleopas and that other person that goes unnamed. He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. That would have been the Old Testament scriptures, friends, at that day and time, right? What was said in the Old Testament about himself. Some people think the Old Testament is about Israel and the New Testament is about Jesus. And then, and then in John 5, 39, Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. <laughs> One theme. One theme written over 1,600 years by 40 different authors. Some of those authors were kings and some of them were prisoners. Some of those authors were fishermen and some of them were, were, were medical doctors. It was written in caves. It was written in homes. It was written in palaces. It was written in prisons. In prisons. And all of that has one theme running through it. How does that happen? How does that happen? Unless there is a unless scripture is God-breathed. So I come back to where I started, and I said, this study and the understanding of that scripture is true, it's crucial, it's important, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Because I can understand and believe the truth that the Red Sea was parted and all those other things, 
But unless I understand the theme of the Bible and unless I come to grips with the theme of the Bible, unless I come to grips with the person of Jesus Christ, knowing that the Red Sea was really parted does me no good. It's important. It's, it's, it's valuable. It's, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. What is sufficient is me coming to the truth of the person of Jesus Christ and what he did. And don't stop there on what he did. Because if you say what he did, you make him nothing but a historical figure. You have to say what he did for me. (laughs) Is that the way it is for you? That you personally come to grips with this one theme that runs all the way through the Bible, and it's Jesus who died. Friends, not for the world. Get him out of the world. He died for you. And when that gets attached to your heart in a real way, you get saved. You're born again. You've accepted Christ. Whatever terminology you want to put on that. That's why. Understanding that it's historically accurate, scientifically accurate, prophetically accurate. It's good. It's crucial. It's important. It's necessary. But it's not sufficient. You've still got to come to the grips with the person of Jesus. So that's why. That's why every Sunday, no matter what I preach on, no matter what topic in God's word, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, no matter what topic, we end at the table. Because everything points to Christ and what he's done for us. All of God's word leads you to the cross. If you don't see that, it'll be a suffocating document that you just can't live up to. Our servers are coming to the table. Father, we believe we have the word of God in our hands. Your very breath And so, Father, would we just not accept it as true, true events that really happen? May may we accept it in its totality, in the theme that it really pushes, that there's a life that we're called to that there no man, woman, boy, or girl has ever lived. And because there was one who lived it, and died an unnecessary death for himself, but a necessary death for us. We can look to his cross and say what happened on that cross was done for me. And I accept Jesus' payment for my sin. And somehow, Father, somehow, if that is not only a belief in our head, but a belief in our head and in our hearts, Somehow something happens to us and we are changed people. Take these words now.
and plant them deep in the hearts of everyone who's listening right here in this place and people that are listening on the internet. And if they haven't come to grips with the reality of the theme of the Bible, the person of Christ, may they do that now, even as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen.